0: All right, so good morning. Um, My name is Caleb Cable, I'm the pastoral assistant here at Reconcile. And it is good to preach this morning. Um, I remember growing up, we used to play a game called Opposite Day as a kid. Raise your hand if you know what Opposite Day is. So Opposite Day is a day when you're a kid, when you decide that everything you say is actually the Opposite. So if I wanted to tell you that my name is Caleb, I would say, my name is not Caleb. And then you would know that my name is Caleb. It makes sense, right? No, it's confusing. And, and the further the day would go on, the more and more confused you would end up being because what people were saying was not actually what they meant. They meant the opposite of what they were saying. And we expect that when someone says something that they actually mean what they're saying. So this is kind of what was happening in the nation of Israel when we we see this passage right here. The the people were saying one thing, but they didn't actually mean it. They were meaning something else, and they would do the opposite of what they said they would do. There was a faithfulness problem in the nation of Israel. And last week, uh, we saw as Pastor Will preached, that there was a worship problem, that, that they, were, they were half-heartedly worshiping him. They were bringing him uh, bad offerings, and they didn't really want to worship him. And so there was a worship problem. But what we see is as, as the passage continues on, that this worship problem was not simply a vertical issue up and down, but it also affected the way that they treated each other. It was a horizontal issue. As well. So that's what we're gonna read in the text today. But let's before we do that, let's pray together. God, I pray that that you would open our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to understand your word. I pray that we would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to obey. I pray that you would help me to preach with clarity. I pray that you would fill me with boldness from the Holy Spirit so that I could preach your word. This morning, I pray all of this in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So the first thing we see is that worship is not simply vertical. It's not just our relationship with God, but it's also the way we treat others around us. We live in a very individualistic culture in America. America is is built on rugged individualism. And this individualism has crept into the church. We see it in phrases like, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Now, while it's good that, that you personally have to have a relationship with Jesus, you can't get in based on your parents or your uncle being a pastor or any of those other things. Uh, we see rugged individualism in the church. An example is like, oh, it's just me and Jesus. Like, just me and him. And, and you see people who's, who claim to be Christians who say, yeah, I don't really go to church. I don't do the church thing. Or, or they don't, they, if they do go to a church, they'll, they'll kind of bounce around going from church to church to church, not really getting deep, not really diving in, not really serving. We see rugged individualism in the church. But this is not, worship is, is more than just you and your relationship with God. Worship overflows into how you treat other people around you. In Romans 12, the, the Apostle Paul, he wrote, he's writing to the church, he said, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So the way that we worship is how we use our bodies and and who experiences how we use our bodies is the people around us. The things that we do, the things that we say, this is our true worship according to Romans 12. And people are the ones who experience these things that we do. And if we think about it, most of our time is spent with other people. Like we're, we're here at Sunday morning for a couple hours. We might have a Sunday night prayer meeting. We might have Wednesday night missional community. But that's just a small portion of the time of our life. We worship at those things, but also our, the majority of our time is outside of the church, interacting with people on a daily basis. And if we think that worship is simply the act of being at church, singing to God, praying, reading his word, then we're missing out on opportunities to worship him for 75% of our week at least. And this is why when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, it's twofold. It's not just one. He says, it's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. These two are interconnected. They cannot be separated. In fact, the, in the Ten Commandments, the majority of the commandments are between us and other people. It's not necessarily between us and God. It's, it's how we treat people, how we interact with people. Because that is our true worship. The true worship is the way that we treat other people. And what we see in the text is that the people of Israel were mistreating each other. They were being unfaithful. And then they would go to the temple and they would offer sacrifices to the Lord. And the Lord said he did not accept their worship. Look at verse 13. It says, This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hand. So the people... We're mistreating each other, being unfaithful to one another outside of the temple, then coming into the temple, after offering half-hearted sacrifices to the Lord. And he says, I don't want any of this. I don't care about your little offerings. I care about the way that you treat one another. I care about the way that you are faithful to the things that you have said you will do to other people. This is where we find ourselves in the text this morning. So how were the people being unfaithful to one another? Well, the passage gives us three examples, and it's not exhaustive. It's just a couple examples. I'm sure they were, they were doing many more things to one another. But this is what the prophet chose to bring up. You are doing this. This and this. So let's look at these three things they were doing. The first thing is, can be found in verse 10. They were being unfaithful to one another. Verse 10 says, Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? That word treacherously can, can be understood as like being deceitful or fraudulent. In other words, they were being unfaithful to one another. The things that they said they would do, they were not following through and doing. They were, they were probably breaking contracts with one another. They were, they were just not being faithful. And we all know someone like this, right? Like someone that you say, can you meet me at five? And they say, yeah. And then in the back of your mind, you're thinking, we may or may not meet at five. They may not even show up at all. Or if someone says, I'll take care of that for you, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, I'm probably still going to have to do this myself because they're not going to follow through and do this. And so, so we, um, this is what the nation of Israel was doing to each other. They were just dealing unfaithfully with one another and then expecting the Lord to accept their sacrifices Faithfulness is the glue that holds together a society. This, this is why, this is one of the reasons why we should be faithful to one another. It's, it's what holds together society. Think about it. The church, the, the, the members agree to, to faithfully attend, to give, and to serve in the church. The pastors agree to faithfully preach the word, to shepherd people, to care for their needs. In the family a, a husband chooses to uh, commits to be faithfully loving his wife, providing for her needs, serving her. The wife agrees to faithfully love and serve her husband in the government we as as uh, As people who are under the government, citizens, uh, we agree to faithfully pay our taxes and to obey the laws that the government has set in place. And then the government in turn agrees to, to provide for our needs, to serve us, and to protect us. And if one party breaks their commitment, society begins to break down. And this is, we can see so many examples of this in real life. Society is breaking down because one or more parties are not being faithful to the covenants and to the promises that they have made to each other. But the text gives us uh, the ultimate reason for faithfulness. In verse 10, it says, don't we all have one father? Didn't one God create us? So, so the ultimate reason for faithfulness is that we are all united under God. We all are equal. I, I have four brothers. So growing up, um, we got in a lot of fights, um, as would be expected. And so a lot of times we'd be out in the yard fighting one another. We'd be in a big mess on the, on the ground. Our mom would come out and yell at you, stop that. He's your brother. You ever heard that? It's like, y'all are blood. You shouldn't be doing this. Why? Because you're equal. You are the same. You're part of the same family. You should not treat one another this way. This is the argument that he is using. He's like, y'all are all created equally under God. We are the same. Why do we treat one another this way? This is not how it should be. And it exposes the root of unfaithfulness, The root of our unfaithfulness is that we actually, we're functionally believing that we are more important than other people. We functionally believe that what we want, our own desires are more important than the promises that we have made to other people. And this is not how it should be. So that is, that is the first example of, of what Israel was doing. They were treating each other unfaithfully. The second example is that they were being unfaithful to the Lord. Look at verse 11. It says, Judah has acted treacherously, and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Let me be absolutely clear with you. This has zero, nothing to do with race or ethnicity. Nothing to do with that. I know a lot of people in the past have twisted this scripture to make it say that. But that is not what this is about. This is not a race or an ethnicity issue. This is about who they worshipped. We as Christians, let me back up. This was about who they worshipped. The people of Israel, they had made a covenant to God that they would be faithful to him. That they would not be idolatrous. That they would not bring other gods into their nation. So why on earth would they go and marry women who were worshipping other gods and idols? How does that make sense? In in, in our culture today, as, as Christians... Why would we go and pursue a relationship, a marital relationship with someone who does not love the same God as you? I'm talking to the single people for a minute. If you are single and you want to be married, the Bible is so clear. Do not pursue a relationship with someone who does not love the Lord. Why? Because it will tear you away from the Lord. There's so many examples in the scriptures of, of people who were pursuing relationships with uh, people who did not worship God, and it led to ruin, it led to destruction. Look at the, the story of Samson. Samson was a, a strong, mighty warrior for the Lord. He, he led the nation of Israel, but he wanted to be he wanted a relationship with a woman who did not follow God, who did not worship God. What did it lead to? It led to him ultimately dying. It led to, to him being tricked by her. She shaved his head. He got captured by the people, uh, by the Philistines, and eventually it led to his death and destruction. And then in, in Solomon, he was the son of David. So he, he, he's king over Israel. During his reign, Israel had more wealth than at any other point in their history. They had peace because of the work that his father David had done during his reign. And what happened? He, he continually pursued women who did not love and serve the Lord. And what it led to, It led to the nation ultimately being split because they brought idols into their nation so that the the women could worship their God there. And after that, the nation was split and ultimately judged. And uh, uh, Jerusalem ended up being destroyed because of it. It just does not work. If you love the Lord... Don't pursue a relationship with someone who does not because it will lead to ruin and we see it here in the text. Verse 12, it says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, whoever he may be, even if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. To cut off literally means may his lineage stop right there. May he not have any more kids or descendants. May it just his line stop right there. This is, this is what happens, that it leads to ruin and destruction. Let's move on to the third thing that they were doing. The third thing can be found in verse 14. They were being unfaithful to their wives. The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have acted treacherously against her. So what was happening is, is the nation of Israel, was, uh, they were divorcing their wives to pursue these f- foreign women who, who worshipped foreign gods. This is what was happening in the text. And it's, it's easy to point the finger and say, well, that's dumb. Y'all shouldn't be doing that. That's bad. But in America, you know that 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce, even in the church. 40 to 50%. I I can guarantee you that every single one of you have been touched by divorce. Either you have been through a divorce yourself or maybe your parents have been through a divorce or someone you are very close to has been through divorce. I can almost guarantee that every single one of you have felt the effects of divorce. And this is what was happening in this context. The men of Israel were just divorcing their wives left and right to marry these foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. And the, and the scripture gives us a couple reasons why this was a big deal. Number one can be found in verse 14. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. What what does that word covenant mean? The the covenant of marriage is before God. It's not just between you and your spouse. It's a covenant that you have made before a holy and a powerful God. And so it should be taken seriously. It's, It's not some flippant agreement like I'll meet you at five. It's a covenant, a promise made before God himself. So it should be taken seriously. The second reason is that in marriage, two become one. Look at verse 15. He says, didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? All the way back in Genesis, when, when God created the institution of marriage, he said, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. When you are married to someone, you were two and you have become one through the covenant of marriage. What happens when you have one thing and you rip it in half? It creates pain. It creates suffering. It, 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 it There's a problem. It's not the same as it was before. Right? It's going to hurt. And th- this is a reason that we should take the covenant of marriage seriously. And the third reason is that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. The, the, the picture of marriage is, is, is showing how Jesus loves the church. The, the husband, just like Christ, chooses to sacrifice and love his wife unconditionally. And then the wife chooses to submit to the husband just as the church submits to Christ. It paints a beautiful picture of the gospel to the world. So when we as Christians don't take marriage seriously, we are lying about Jesus. We are telling the world a lie about Jesus. And that should not be taken lightly. And there's all sorts of negative effects of divorce. In this specific culture, it was an act of oppression. Because women who had been divorced did not have a lot of options. Most of the time they would go and live with their parents afterwards. And, and not, not many men would want to marry a previously uh, married woman. This is how the culture was. And so it was an act of oppression because men could very easily divorce their wives in this context. But women, it was impossible, according to their law, to divorce a man. And so men had had the authority and the power. And when power is, is abused, that's when oppression happens. So these women were being oppressed And in verse 15, it says, What is the one seeking? Godly offspring. A godly marriage cultivates godly children. And when the breakdown of the family happens, there's a breakdown in the children as well. And you can see the effects. It's a painful process for a child to, to see a divorce happen and to grow up without one or the other parent. There's going to be a hole there. There's going to be gaps. and This is, this is where the breakdown happens. This, this is the effects of divorce. And so in verse 16, it answers the question, how does God feel about divorce? This is just a disclaimer, Uh, the passage, the, 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 the version that he read and the version that I read is going to be different. This is one of the hardest to translate verses in the entire Bible. And there's a lot of different arguments about how it should be translated. So I'm going to read it and then I'm going to kind of explain the difference. It says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice. Or, or another translation his says, God hates divorce. Here's the point. The way God looks at divorce is the way he looks at violent oppression. Do you think God likes it when people are violently oppressing other people? No. This is the exact same way that he thinks of divorce. This is, this is kind of the point of what this passage is saying. And godly marriage requires intense intentionality. In verse fifteen, it says, "Watch yourselves carefully." And it says the same thing at the end of sixteen: "Watch yourself carefully, so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth." So so far, I know a lot of y'all are sitting here like, "Ooh, this is this is this is not a happy passage." So far, it is not happy. I, either you are feeling conviction yourself or you're just a liar. Um, and because I was convicted when I was reading this. I have been unfaithful to people I deal with. Um, I, I have not personally been divorced, but I know there's, there's a lot of people who have been. And it's a painful process, and I'm not meaning to condemn or to shame you because of that. And there are, there are biblical reasons for divorce that we can find in Scripture. I don't have time to get into all of that in this. But there are, God, there are biblical reasons. And so, I, I'm not meaning to condemn or to shame you, but this is just what was next in the, in the uh, series that we're going through in the book of Malachi. Um, thank you, Will, for giving me this passage. So... <laughs> What, how, an important question when you're reading scripture is how does this point to Jesus in the gospel? Because Jesus promised when, when he was talking to his disciples that all scriptures point to him. All scriptures are about Jesus. So how does this point to Jesus? Well, I'm going to tell you. The Lord Jesus is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his word. Although we are unfaithful, we deal unfaithfully with ourselves, with other people, we deal unfaithfully with our spouses. The Lord is not that way. The Old Testament, I don't know where it is, but it says the Lord is not a man that he should lie. He tells the truth always. He is faithful to his promises. He has never made a promise that he will not keep. When he says something, he intends to follow through, and he actually has the authority and the power to make it happen. Back all the way in the the beginning when, when man first sinned in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise in the garden. He said of the serpent that he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The woman would have a seed born to her who would destroy the plans of the serpent. And over 1500 years before Jesus was born, God made a promise to Abram that he would have a son. And that son would turn into a great nation and that nation would bless the entire world. It said that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. How? Because through through Abraham's lineage, Jesus would come. This was a promise over 1500 years before Jesus was born. And then God made a promise to King David when he was ruling that he would raise up from his descendants a king who would rule forever and ever. His reign would never end, he would be the perfect king. And the Lord promised Mary that she would conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. What happened? Jesus was born. The promised one came. The Lord was faithful to his word and sent Jesus to be, a, to be the one who would live a perfect life in our place and die a cruel, gruesome death in our place and then raise from the dead and that he would give us his righteousness. That he would give us who were unfaithful his faithfulness, so that when God looks at us, he would not see the ways we have been unfaithful to one another, but he would see the way that Jesus was faithful when he was on the earth. That's what God sees when he looks at you, if you have put your trust in him. And he endured all of this. Jesus went through all of this, leaving heaven, coming on earth, suffering while he lived, suffering in his death. So that he could be with his bride, the church, forever. Why did Jesus go through all of this? So that he could be with you forever. He loved you so much that he wants you in his presence. He wants you in his presence so much, he was willing to die. That's the kind of love that Jesus has for us. That's the kind of faithfulness that he has. That although we are unfaithful, though we are unfaithful to him, we're unfaithful to others, we're unfaithful to our spouses, God was not unfaithful to us. And he proved his his faithfulness to the point of dying on a cross so that we could be with him, so that we could experience his presence so that we could experience the blessings that come from having a relationship with him. This is what Christ has done for us. So although we are the unfaithful bride, we are the one who has left him time and time and time again to follow after the desires of the world, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. Although we do that, Jesus has been faithful to us and he keeps calling us back. To repentance. He keeps calling us back saying, I forgive you. I love you. I paid for that on the cross. And I want you with me. This kind of love is worthy of our worship this morning. It's worthy. Like we saw in the passage last week that the people were bringing half-hearted worship to God, that they didn't really want to worship him. They were just going through the motions, doing the things that they were, whatever they wanted to do. And, and this had effects on the way they treated people around them. But Jesus loved us enough to die for us, to be faithful to us, although we were unfaithful to him. And this should cause us to worship him, worship him in a way that's, that's embarrassing, David, the the king of Israel one time, he he was so excited during worship that he was dancing in the street looking a fool and he danced so hard that his clothes fell off. I'm not saying we we should take our clothes off. I'm just saying his wife was embarrassed of him. He was dancing so hard for the Lord. This is the kind of worship that this should cultivate in us because we have a faithful God who loves us through our unfaithfulness. So here's how how we can respond to this passage. Think about the people that are around you. If, if you work, who are your coworkers or who are the clients that you work with? Who, uh, if you are married, think of your spouse. If, if you if you have children, think of them. If, if you are a student, think of your teachers. And people that God has placed over you. If you're a parent, if you're a child, think of your parents. Who are the people that the Lord has placed around you? And then think, are you being faithful to your obligations? Are you being faithful to do the things that you have been called to do? And it shouldn't flow from from an obligation like, oh, I guess I gotta do this. No, it should flow from an overflow of thinking of Jesus' faithfulness to you. Jesus has been so faithful to you, and he said, this is the better way to do it. So we know we can trust him. We know we can believe him. So out of that overflow, we should be faithful to one another in whatever, whatever sphere of life you're in, be faithful to the people that God has placed around you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are the faithful one, that you have never made a promise that you did not intend to keep and that you were not able to keep. Lord, thank you that although we were unfaithful, though we were, were in our sins, chasing the, all that the world had to offer us. You pursued us and you faithfully loved us. You loved us to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. But you didn't stay dead. You rose from the grave. You were vindicated. You were declared righteous by God. And then you give us that righteousness. Lord, thank you for this gift that you have given us. Thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.